0: We'll So should we let him do it again? Yes. Yeah? Okay. Still talking to the Lord about that one. The uh, baptism. I believe that we're having the baptism here that Sunday because the lake has all the grimy stuff in it. So last year we did that, and I'm pretty sure we're doing that this year. So we're doing a baptism uh, during the services, and then we'll all go out to the um, lake Also, there's a picture here. This is the, a picture from Belize, or from SeaTac, from of the team. There's a bunch of them at the, at the uh, connection desk. I would love it if you would pick one up and just be praying. And then the bracelet, I think they're handing them out. Does anyone know what they're doing? I don't know what I'm doing this morning. I don't know about this guy that was up here before me. I don't even know the guy. No. <laughs> it, are, did you get a bracelet, or are they handing them out? Who knows? This is what happens when everyone goes, they're back there somewhere, okay. (laughs) So, where are we in the Bible this morning? (laughs) The bowls, prayer, please, let us know how we can pray for you or how God has answered prayer, We'll, we'll do that. So, would you stand, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, a real turning point in this gospel, we'll look at that in a moment, but in verses 20, we're going to go through 20. Verses 27 through 38. I'm going to read that. We're going to do a short out of Psalm 119, the third letter of the Hebrew alphabet. We're going to do a little responsive reading of those eight verses. And then we'll pray and we'll get into this text. But I want to read the whole text. And then we'll also be rereading it as we go through it. So in Mark 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the town of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist But some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Verse 34. But when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy, with the holy angels." Responsive reading: I'll read 17 and the odd. You read the 18 even. Then I'll pray. Psalm 19. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. You rebuke the proud, the cursed. Who stray from your commandments. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your testimonies are our delight and our counselors. I ask, Lord, give us ears to hear the things I prepared, break them fresh, feed us. We're hungry. We love your word. Deal bountifully, Lord, with us in the word this morning as, as a, the things I prepared that I may be able to communicate, Lord, the things that are on your heart. Teach us what we do not know. Give us what we do not have and make us what we are not yet, Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit through the word now, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. You can be seated. So as I said, this morning we begin this second half of our study of the Mark's gospel. The first half was about The gospel. So the things that we looked at were the gospel, so-and-so. This morning, we start in talking about the disciple. That's you and me who've been following Christ. Jesus begins with these verses. In them, we have three parts, which we read, which give us three questions. So you have the Christ. Who do you say that Jesus is? Secondly, we have the cross. Are you mindful of the things of God? Third, we have the Christian. Do you desire to follow Jesus? This is what Jesus is going to hit right to begin into the last part of this book. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the Christ. Are you mindful of the things of God, centered in the cross? Do you desire to follow Jesus? That's the question, the Christian. John Newton wrote this. What think ye of Christ? It's old, so bear with the language. What think ye of Christ is the test? To try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is believed or not, so God is deposed to you, disposed to you, and mercy or wrath are your lot. It hinges. Who is Jesus? The Christ. So Jesus and his disciples went out of the town of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah and others, one of the, one of the prophets. So the, the first question he asks is, who do men say that I am? Now, I love what Lloyd Ogilvie writes in his, in his commentary on this. Quote, this was not the question of an insecure leader seeking to know his standing in the public opinion polls. It was a probing inquiry designed to determine the exact to de- determine the exact extent to which men were discovering the true nature of his message mes- mission and his message John the Baptist that's what Herod thought Jesus is John the Baptist risen from the dead Elijah a specific prophet who's the forerunner of Jesus Now, in Matthew, it says, Jeremiah, again, a specific prophet, the weeping prophet. Others say one of the prophets, so one among a list of prophets. But all of these answers were greatly deficient and an inadequate view of who Jesus is. Note, I want to note something. It's not what men were saying of the things he had done. It's not what men were saying about the things that he had said. But who do men say that I am? His person. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, that's the second question. Jesus is patiently, and we looked at this last week, bringing his disciples along in their understanding of who he is. He's bringing them along in in understanding his mission that he came to accomplish. And brothers and sisters, he is doing the same for us. We're discovering and learning more and more. He brings us along very patiently in who he is and what he wants to do in our lives. So the answer, Peter answered, said, you are the Christ. Peter answered in Luke and says, the Christ of God. In Matthew, it tells us that Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is not a human thing. It's a revelation from, the, from God himself. So this supernatural revelation to Peter from God was also to Peter from God for all the others to hear and then hear the response of Jesus. He's bringing them along. You're the Christ. And they're probably nodding somewhat in their heads, but Peter said it. Christ is not his last name. It's his title. You are the Christ. Now, in the Expositor's Commentary, we read, quote, the Greek word Christos, Christ, translates the Hebrew word Messiah and means the anointed one of God. The word carries with it the idea of chosenness by God, consecration to his service, and endowment with his power to accomplish the task assigned, unquote. It's the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now, the disciples still had much to learn concerning the task that Jesus, as the Messiah, had been assigned to accomplish in his first coming. Much to learn. Morgan writes, quote, one man had confessed him supreme, Peter. That is the real value of the confession. Thou art not John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, a prophet. Thou art not one looking for another. Thou art art the other for whom all have looked, the last and final one, to the brightness of whose coming longing eyes have long been lifted, Messiah, anointed king and priest. This is what they were waiting for. Here he is. He's arrived. He's the anointed one. He's the priest." It was the confession the Lord was seeking, unquote. He wants them to see this. He wants them to know this and understand it. But notice verse 30. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. This is a turning point now in the ministry of Jesus, focusing on his disciples. And he would have them to watch and listen very carefully. To take in what he's telling them, new things that he's telling them. Because in six months, the cross will be real. In six months, they will see him on the cross, and Jesus is saying to them, It is not a mistake. This is what's going to happen. It's not a miscalculation. It's not some terrible blunder that Jesus made by going to Jerusalem. Hardly. It was a plan put in place from the foundation of the world by the eternal, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, triune God, that is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to send the Son to die and pay the penalty for our sins to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. A plan to demonstrate his love for a rebellious world to bring them back to himself, a world broken and shattered because of rebellion and sin, a world lost and without hope because of rebellion and sin. God's plan. That God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. That he would provide the way, which is Jesus, by which the vilest rebel sinner can be reconciled to God, forgiven of all his or her sin, have the right to be called children of God, and have a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us, unquote. Yeah. Amen. That's the plan. That's what God did for you and for me. It wasn't a blunder. It wasn't a mistake. It was God's plan. And to take that in for these disciples, you see, we come now to the cross, Are you mindful of the things of God? It's the cross centered in the cross. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. The Son of Man is by far the favorite expression used by Jesus to identify himself, the Son of Man. No one... No one else, friend or foe, used it to identify him. It was his. So it's very important when we read these 80 times in the gospel, 80 plus times in the gospel, son of man, son of man. In our passage this morning, two times, son of man. Now, the word Christ or Messiah came with its own baggage as to the expectation of what would happen when Messiah comes. It had these expectations attached to it, as we do with many things that we hear, especially politically. Jesus did not come to be a political Messiah. He did not come to, to take down the, the Roman government. However, this Christ, this Messiah, this Son of Man, will will one day establish his kingdom on earth. Let's do that again. Amen. He will. In the Old Testament, son of man occurs numerous times. In Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, son of man, and means simply man, or a specific man, prophet. But there is one time You'll love it, Greg. There's one time in the Old Testament where this term is very different, used very differently. It's in Daniel chapter 7, where it says, I was watching. This is a vision Daniel was, we could get into this, tons of it beyond. We're just gonna read it and make one statement. He's having this vision, and Daniel had a lot of visions. He's having the vision, and I was watching in the night sea visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. That is the Son of Man, King of kings, Lord of lords. You look at that language, you'll see it in the New Testament. Revelation. Even Jesus himself included these things, these glorious things of his second coming whenever he spoke about his first coming, whenever he spoke about the cross. So in our passage this morning, but then also in Mark three times, in Mark 13, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. He is coming again to establish his kingdom, the Son of Man. Mark chapter 14, and the high priest stood in the mi- up in the midst of, and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? He's on trial, quote unquote. What, if, what is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent, answered nothing. Oh, but wait a second. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the, the Christ, the son of the blessed? He answers now, and he says, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with clouds of heaven. He is coming again. Can I hear a rejoicing? Amen. Amen. He is coming again. He will set up that king, but that is not why he came the first time. He did not come as the glorious king of kings and lord of all. He came as the suffering servant. And so in identifying himself as the son of man, he combines his future eschatological glory with his rejection, suffering, and death at his first coming. The Jews had such a, had a very difficult time combining these two things to the point where some suggested there were two messiahs, a suffering servant and a glorified king. That's how, how much they just could not put that, and it's the same thing that's going on with his disciples. He began to teach and the Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders. And this, the elders are the lay leaders, the chief priests or the Sadducees, the scribes, mostly, mostly Pharisees. These made up the high court, the supreme court of Israel. That's who condemned him. They, so the Son of Man must suffer at their hands. And, he, and indeed he did. So he's revealing some difficult things. But listen. These things become the focus of the final six months of his time with his disciples. And brothers, and sisters, the cross remains it for us today. Are you mindful of the things of God? How God sees things. How God then demonstrates to us his love. And then not only that, but then delivers us from the sin and the bondage of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to him. To God be the glory. He's revealing these difficult things. Three predictions he made of his suffering, and yet every time he said, and will rise again the third day. Difficult for them to understand anything about it. They were afraid of the whole thing. It says they were afraid. When he, They're afraid. What's gonna happen? What's going on? And Jesus seems so calm, so in control, and indeed he is and was. And yet for them, they're afraid you know, and, and really, in some ways, they should be afraid. If there's no resurrection, if he's going to be killed and there's no resurrection, we're of all most men to be pitied. But every time he said, and rise again the third day, it's my opinion that he, they didn't even hear that. They just heard, no way. And so, after three days, he will rise again. They would hear it loud and clear when indeed he did. Do we hear that loud and clear, the things of God? He rose again the third day. He is alive, and I know we believe that. He is living. And such is the plan of God for you and for me. His love for you and for me. It's totally and absolutely unbelievable except that there's a resurrection. He rose from the dead. That this is really true, that God so loved the world, it's as sure as God himself. It's as true as God himself. I've been playing this for the last two weeks because the worship team played it, the love of God. I probably can't read it without crying because it's so powerful that God would so love us The chorus is, "O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure, the saints and angels song, that God loves us. It's greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. That's you and me. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write, to write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. You can't go you can't the depths of it, or the heights of it, or the width, you can't. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure, the saints and angels song. You see, the cross, are we mindful of the things of God? He demonstrated his love for us in sending Jesus to die on the cross. You know this, I know this, but oh, does it ever get, you ever get tired of it? Does it ever get like, well, that's shallow. It's as deep and deeper than we can ever go. He spoke this word openly. Through the gospel, he speaks this word openly. These are the things of God. Are you mindful of the things of God? Am I mindful of the things of God? Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, let me say this. If you ever rebuke in the Lord, you're the one that's wrong. (laughs) In Matthew, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But when he, Jesus, had turned and looked at his disciples... You want to make sure he had their riveted attention here. He rebuked Peter with these words, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You talk about hurting someone's feelings. You talk about ruining someone's party. You talk about someone's parade being rained on. Jesus did all three and many more. Get behind me, Satan. He's speaking to Peter, who became a voice for the devil himself, unwittingly, because he did not, was not mindful of the things of God. He didn't understand those things. He would, and they would, and we do. Now, I think the other disciples felt the same exact way. It's just Peter, as normal, who opened up his mouth. Someone said the best way to save face is to keep the lower half closed. So, Jesus immediately recognized the source. It's Satan himself. Now, that's, to me, that is severe. Unwittingly. And just like the temptations of the devil with Jesus, he is seeking to disrupt the mission, he's seeking to get you to avoid the cross. Ironside, in his commentary, says, Some some time ago, I read a sermon on the recklessness of Jesus, in which the preacher, while professing warm admiration for his earnestness and purpose, Jesus, bewailed the sad impulsiveness that took him to Jerusalem the last time, thus literally throwing himself into danger and courting the opposition of the leaders in Israel who were bent upon destroying him. He goes on. How much better might it have been for the world suggests this unconscious blasphemer. If Jesus had remained quietly in Galilee, perhaps established a school of teachers in Capernaum, maybe written a number of books, thereby enriching the religious literature of the world, and died at last in a good old age, honored and loved by countless disciples who could have been trusted to carry his instruction to the ends of the earth. Then Ironside writes, one shudders as he repeats such wicked nonsense, unquote. Get behind me, say Jesus willingly laid down his life in loving obedience to the Father for the purpose of the atoning of our sins on the cross. Willingly. All this in the perfect love and unity and will of the Godhead. By so doing, Jesus satisfied the demands of a just God to forgive our sins Reconcile us to God by his blood. Justify us by faith in him, thus making peace. He did all that, listen, important, willingly. Why do I say that? There's a thing called the penal substitution atonement doctrine. In the American Gospel, Christ crucified documentary, and again, if you haven't seen it, I hope you'll, read, you'll watch that. And there's two of them out by now. I've mentioned this a couple of times, particularly where we are right now in the scriptures. It exposes those, so this is is not, this goes back, but it's still the same thing today. Get behind me, Satan, speaking blasphemous things as though they're from the Lord, as though they're representing God. So through trickery, straw man arguments, and blasphemy, would, would, they'd have you believe that the substitute sacrifice of Jesus was, quote unquote, "cosmic child abuse." Or that it may, now this is a quote from a guy named Brian Zand. I don't know who he is, but I looked him up and he's a blasphemer. Or that quote, "It makes God a cosmic monster. And then he says, does God really love me or has he simply been paid off, unquote? As far as, a, as motivation for the cross, this is Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Beck. He just kind of settles it in for me. As a matter, as far as motivation for the cross, it would be wrong to suggest that the Lord Jesus is being subjected to a punishment for which he was unwilling. That's the key. Or that he, in turn, was seeking to coerce the Father to display his love in a way that would be, if you like, breaking new territory. He goes on. The Bible is so helpful. I love this. The Bible is so helpful if we just read it. That the most famous verse in the Bible explains the magnificence of the love of God. He so loved, he gave. Jesus did not die on the cross so that the Father would love us. Jesus died on the cross because the Father loves us, unquote. Can you take it in a little more? Are you mindful of the things of God? Jesus was not hemmed in by circumstances beyond his control. He did not fall victim to forces greater than himself, but he said it continuously. Some would say, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide with me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? John chapter 10, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I receive from my Father. It's willing. That God had unified the love of God and the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This comes out of love, not coercion, not cosmic violence, but a love so deep and so rich and so measureless that men have to take and twist it to somehow move people away from such a fantastic God who loves us and died on a cross for us. Jesus in John chapter 12, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The Godhead, the Father, he willingly laid down his life. That's the key. If you ever come up to to face with this, These blasphemous doctrinal statements, the difference is that Jesus willingly, in the councils of the Godhead, had a plan to come and die because of love for us. He controlled the very time and hour of his death. In Acts chapter 2, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken... By lawless hands I have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death. It is not possible that he should be held by it. This is the plan of God. Peter, are you seeking to set me straight? Let me, t- let me set you straight. I believe the Holy Spirit would say these blasphemous young men and older men that would say such things, they need to be put. Jesus is going to straighten that all out, if not here, hopefully here. You see, man-centered values, man-centered mindsets, and man-centered viewpoints. (laughs) Last week, beware of them. Satan tempted Jesus to save himself, flee the cross. Satan tempted Jesus to do his own will. Don't obey the Father. Go my route by going to the cross. Satan tempted Jesus to take the easy path to glory. By circumventing the cross, he would have none of it. Not even a minute millisecond thought. None of it. Save yourself. Flee the shame. Flee the suffering. Flee the the rejection. Circumvent it. I was reminded in Mark 14, we'll get to this. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, which means the press, the olive press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John with him, began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This continues. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleepy? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. Some say you shouldn't repeat your prayers. Jesus did it. Good enough for me. Same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. And I believe, whether it was an hour, two, three, I don't know. But was Jesus there in his own agony, and the disciples are sleeping. I believe he's praying over them. He said to Peter, I prayed for you, your faith failed not. And he's in that garden, facing the cross, in his perfect love, is there and he's praying and he's praying for each one of those of his disciples. It's such a comfort to know we have a great high priest who's interceding for us. Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And we know they all forsook him. And so it takes us to this third point, And we'll be hitting this as we go. But to go over it this morning. The Christian. Do you desire to follow Jesus? If you're a believer of the Holy Spirit, I know that you do. Do you desire to follow Jesus? You see, Satan tempts the disciple. To not obey God. To not take up his cross and live a crucified life. Satan tempts his disciple to save himself by fleeing the crucified life. To circumvent living the crucified life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. To take another path. Because it's easier. To take another path because it seems so glorious. No, there's only one road and it's narrow that leads to life. It's in following Jesus. So when he called the people to himself and his disciples also. He said, whoever desires to come after me, let him take up his cross. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, deny, pick up, follow. It's an invitation to anyone who desires. A man taking him his cross is a man going to die. It's a life surrendered, wholly willing to do what God said no matter what. No matter what the cost. It's one denying himself decisively. And saying to, no to selfish." interests, self-life. Self-denial is not to deny one's personality, to die as a martyr, or to deny things. It's denial of self. It's turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. It's turning away from every temptation to align my life by the dictates of my own self-interest. It means refusing to allow things contrary to God's word to become something that is okay for my life. And the other way too. It's wholly willing to obey God. It's something far deeper than going without sugar in Lent. This is the only path to true spiritual life, to being a disciple, Jesus' words calls us to live lives of self-denial, surrender, suffering, and sacrifice with the glory that's in that to follow. He commands to deny every selfish impulse and deliberately choose a pathway of reproach, suffering, and death in following him. It means forsaking personal comforts, possibly, our social enjoyments, earthly ties, grand ambitions, material riches, even life itself, if that's what God calls you to. It confronts our lives of luxury and ease. It's not comfortable. Would you say that? It's not comfortable. Who wants to die? Confronts our materialism, our selfishness and coldness of heart confronts our personal agendas, pleasures, and liberties. Self-denial is not done for its own sake. It's denying self for the sake of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that I might grow in understanding the depth of his love and humility and mercy and grace. It's saying no to selfish interests, saying yes to the will of God. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will a man, what will a prophet gain the whole world? You see, you can gain the whole world, but what have you gained? You've actually lost the most important thing in all of life, and that is a relationship with God. It's Jesus using very penetrating rhetorical questions. He's showing the supreme value of eternal life and how it's found and how it's lived. Eternal life is to know God. To do any other thing is a bad bargain. Our lives are worth more than all the world could offer. Our souls to God are worth more than the world could ever offer, demonstrated on the cross. Ours is a response to the love of God, this life. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, here it is, the son of man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with with the holy angels. You see, the desire to follow Jesus must not flee from the cross of death to self-life. Desire to follow Jesus must not be disobedient to God and and not deny self. The whole of Jesus' commands has very costly implications in every facet of life. We're going to be studying more of that, digging into it. But for this morning, before we take communion... I must confess how inadequate I can feel in teaching these things to you, knowing how dreadfully lacking I am in desiring to live a crucified life. But note, that is not what Jesus said. What he said is, my desire is to follow him. That's my desire. My desire is to follow Jesus. And as a believer, you have that same desire. My denying self is the agony of the garden. It's the agony of my praying. The perfecting of my faith and working out my salvation with fear, my own salvation, with fear and trembling. For God is working in me to will and do what pleases Him. God is working. My desire is after Him. But the agony comes in that denying of self because there's a flesh and a spirit, and we've talked about this before. Romans is a necessary book to read. There's this battle going on for my will contrary to God's will. My flesh contrary to the spirit. A world in rebellion against God in conflict with the kingdom of God, of righteousness and peace. So I take to heart what Jesus said. He said it to his, we just read it, his sleeping disciples on the night he was betrayed. He said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of you have found that to be true? See, the desire stirs up this conflict. It puts us to sleep. John 15, what Jesus said, the night that he was betrayed, I am the true vine, my father is the husband, the vine dresser. Every branch of me does not bear fruit. He takes you in every branch that bears fruit. He prunes it, painful. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. This is God's doing is marvelous in our eyes. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And he says, abide in me and I in you. For as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And I... I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now, here it is. Now, I've tried to to make this thing not not be what he says. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I I often am challenged. I challenge that. No, hold hold on. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. What's he talking about? Fruitfulness. Relationship. Abide in me. Stay in there. Hang in there in these things. Paul in Romans chapter 7, I'll let you read that. He talks, he gives understanding to this battle between the lust, the, the flesh, and the spirit. And he comes out of chapter 7. He says, There is therefore now what? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In Christ, in the spirit. God removes all condemnation. He draws us in the conviction of the Holy Spirit because I desire to follow Jesus. I desire to live a crucified life. It's the work of God by the Holy Spirit in transforming us, in in causing our sanctification. And therefore, through his work in my life, my life actually begins to glorify him. But I'll tell you, it's painful. It's painful. I love Hebrews, therefore we also are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and what? The sin which besets us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He's writing the book. As, as Charlotte sent me this thing from Facebook called, what is it, Ashley? Something. It's, it's, I was going to read it, but it's too long. It's credible. And she just talks about, hey, you've got to give the pen to the author. Let him do the writing, and it's hard to let go of the pen and allow God to write the chapters of our lives. And it is. So as we get ready for we have the worship team come out and getting ready for communion, here's, here's a John Newton, this, this second part of that hymn. If asked what of Jesus I think, although my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, my all. The Christ, the cross, the Christian. So Paul to the Corinthians said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed. Took bread. Can I keep those lights up another minute? Took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take ye, this is my body, broken for you. And on that night, he gave a whole new meaning to what they had been practicing and celebrating for years as a culture. He said, that's my body, broken for you. You see, they're going through this. He's telling them, we're going to die, be crucified. He's on that night, he was betrayed. He took the bread and said, this is my body. This is what I've been talking about. This is God's plan for you. And he said, take, eat this body which is broken through. Do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, right now, and I hope through this passage, and as we're thinking through these things, we got to remember Jesus. We have to remember him. We need to declare him as our only hope the Savior of our souls, and the one who will see us through. It's him. So as you take the the bread, it says, Paul tells the Corinthians, hey, examine ourselves. And I would say in examining, God's not condemning you, but he's convicting you to come to him with all those requests, all those feelings of inadequacy and failure and weakness. Bring them to the cross because it's there that God took care of the needy we we each have to then reconcile us Mm -hmm and cause our lives to begin to be fruitful for Him. So bring those to Him as it passed out. Hold them, and those cups you know, they have that cellophane thing on the top. There's a cellophane, take that off, and then the second one is the foil for the juice. So let's, let's have those pass out, let's sing this song, and then I'll come up and lead us as we take it together.